you in the back. We're actually out on the table. Oh, you're good. We need tracks. Tracks? Is that what you call them? No, those are things you pass out. Pamphlets? You could pass it out if you want. Now we have to really pay attention. You're okay. So hopefully everybody's well rested this morning, an extra hour of sleep. Um, I know that I needed it, so. Okay, well, we've come together to worship the Lord, and like we've said before, that the first thing we do is the call to worship, which is not me calling you or someone else calling you to worship, but it's God calling us to worship Him. So let's do that together this morning. If you guys want to stand with me, we'll be doing the call to worship from Psalm 95, if you want to follow along after me. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry ground. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. If you want to turn with me to song number nine, we'll sing All Creatures, which is a song about all creation, worshiping the Lord.
Second Samuel, we find the prophet Nathan confronting King David with more than just an indiscretion that he had with Bathsheba, if you know that story. Just about everybody knows that story. And what may not be uh, evident there is that this is probably close to a year after he sinned against Bathsheba at least nine months. And it, it took that much time. And it wasn't until King David was confronted with his sin that he owned that sin, that he acknowledged that sin. And this, um, as you see in your, in your bulletin there, in Psalm 51, this is, this is an outcry. This is a pleading from, from King David that is one of the most personal and most intense of the songs because of the sin that he did against, obviously, God and Bathsheba, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And it just speaks to his contrite heart, his heart that has finally been confronted and broken. And this is, this is an outpouring of that. So let me read this first and then we can all read together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Would you all join me? Almighty, eternal God and Father, we confess and acknowledge unto you that we are full of sin in all our life. We have not fully believed your word, nor followed your holy commandments. Remember your goodness and your name's sake. Be gracious unto us and forgive us our iniquity, which is great. Amen. If you want to turn with me to song number one, we'll sing Before the Throne.
Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We are filled with grateful hearts that even as uh, King David committing the gross sin that he did, that he found his hope, he found love, he found compassion in you. And we can find that same love and compassion and forgiveness in you today, Lord. We thank you for the son that you've sent. We thank you for the opportunity that you would adopt us as sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's confession of faith is from the, an Orthodox catechism. The question is, if Christ has ascended to heaven, as we heard last week, isn't he with us even to the end of the world as he has promised? Here's the answer. Christ is truly man and truly God. In his human nature, he is not now on the earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is not absent from us for even a moment. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning again, everyone. Um, If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we'll be continuing our study of the book of Acts, and we'll be finishing up chapter 9 today. So we'll be in verses 32 through 43, if you want to turn there with me. And so last week, we've been looking, the last several weeks actually, we've been looking at the life of Saul. We saw his conversion um, in the beginning of Acts chapter 9. And last week we covered 13 years of his life. We saw him both proclaim this gospel of the Son of God. So he goes from a um, a persecutor to a proclaimer. But then we see that he is now the one persecuted for this message. And so we saw him go through Damascus, Jerusalem, Tarsus. And we saw this one who was proclaiming this message also now suffering persecution for this message. So we kind of looked at the life of Saul. And then this week, we're sort of jumping over to Peter. So we're picking back up with Peter. You might have remembered from the first couple chapters, Peter was the one doing a majority of the the sermons that we looked at in the book of Acts. We saw him at Pentecost and thereafter. So we're picking back up with Peter. And, And this section we're in is sort of an odd section. It's right after this massive conversion of one of the greatest persecutors of the church, And it's right before chapter 10, which chapter 10 is the inbringing of the Gentiles, the conversion of the Gentiles, of Cornelius namely. And we see this gospel going to the ends of the earth. And so the verses that we're looking at today can seem sort of maybe out of place, but hopefully today we'll see how they're very much in a perfect place and we'll try to make sense of those. So we're going to be looking at two miracles today. We'll be looking at the healing of a crippled man and the resurrection of a dead woman. 
And we'll be seeing how those events point to different things, not only spiritual realities, but um, end times realities, if you will. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll be starting in verse 32 um, to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes and she saw Peter and she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning thankful, not only for this time every week that we set aside from our worldly endeavors to not only rest, but also to worship. You, the triune God who created the world, sustains the world by your powerful hand, and will one day bring it to completion. And we thank you for giving us your holy, infallible, inerrant word that we might know you and worship you rightly. And as we look to these two miracles today, we pray that by your spirit, you would show us the truths that are in these texts and that we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So yeah, sort of interesting passage. A couple miracles, seemingly almost random, if you will. And again, I think it's important to understand this context. Saul was just converted miraculously. And now we're picking up with Peter and there's about to be this amazing event of Gentiles welcome into the church, which is a really fascinating thing if we understand the history of the Old Testament and Israel. And so there's a couple reasons that we'll get in today why this passage is here and why it's important. But if we sort of understand the general trajectory of the Bible and the way God uses these miracles, it will make a lot more sense. So we can say this with certainty, that God acts in history. He then interprets those acts, and then he confirms those acts. And so a good example of this is 
creation, right? We see this in Genesis 1. God creates. He acts. He creates the heavens and the earth. And then through Moses, God interprets those acts. And we see this from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And then God confirms the one inscripturating or writing those acts through miracles. And so we see with Moses, he's given a staff that turns into a snake. He splits the sea. So God is acting. He is then interpreting those acts, telling us what they mean, why they're important, and then confirming the acts that, of the people that inscripturate or in, that write those acts down, in this case, Moses. And so for Peter, this is important. He's about to do something unheard of. He's about to welcome the Gentiles into the fold. We'll look at that next week. But it's important that we see that Peter's message is confirmed by these miracles, that they are saying Peter really is an apostle. He really is a messenger bringing this message. So I think it's important to understand how this fits into the whole story. Even you can think of the prophets like Elijah and Elisha. This is the same truth. So we'll look at these two things today. We'll look at the healing of Aeneas, and we'll look at the resurrection of Tabitha. And then we'll talk about some implications for that. So if you want to look with me at verse 32, we see the healing of Aeneas. And so, right, like we said, it picks up with Peter. We have been with Paul, and now we're with Peter. And it says he's going here and there among these disciples. So he's visiting these different disciples that have gone out, maybe through persecution, and he's visiting them. And he comes to a place in Lydda, and he meets a man named Aeneas. And it says Aeneas was bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. And it's easy to kind of skip over that, um, that detail, but this man was bedridden for eight years. Uh, we don't know how this came to be. Maybe this was a sickness or an accident, but he was in his bed for eight years, unable to do anything, totally helpless. And this would have been hard, especially in those times. There was no electric wheelchairs or, you know, um, people to do that kind of thing. There was... He was stuck to his bed, and he was totally reliant on others to help him. He was totally helpless. And I know for some of us, when we get sick, it's hard to be in bed for eight days. <laughs> and we get impatient, and you know we want to go out. Eight years is a whole other deal. So this man, Aeneas, was truly paralyzed, had no mobility, totally incapable of helping himself. And it's a relatively short um, story. Peter says to him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and make your bed. So again, we've said this throughout the um, this study of Acts, that the book of Acts is not just the Acts of the Apostles or even the Acts of the Spirit, but it's the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. That from heaven, he is, through his appointed messengers, building his church to the ends of the earth by the power of the Spirit. And so we're reminded of that, again, not only when Christ appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, but even now, Peter's saying, Christ heals you. This is the power of the risen Lord that is healing Aeneas. And it's a reminder that Christ is reigning. And like Daryl read in our catechism question, Jesus said two things. He said to the disciples, I will not always be with you. But then he says, I will be with you to the ends of the earth. What are you talking about? <laughs> There's this sense in which Christ, according to his humanity, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is not bodily with us. 
But because of his divine nature, as Dale read, he is at no time not present with us. And so we're reminded of that in this passage today, that Christ, because he ascended and has poured out his spirit, he's not bound by a body. He can do these acts on the earth through his appointed messengers. So we not only see the power and mercy of God, but we see the total and complete healing. This man who was bedridden for eight years is instantly made to rise and walk. So this is no parlor trick. This is no, you know, gradual go through physical therapy. I mean, if you sat in bed for eight days, it would be hard. You know, you might have to learn to walk again. This is eight years. And so this man is instantly healed. His muscles are strengthened. And we see this total and complete healing. And then it says, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So people turn to the Lord because of this. And I think we need to ask this question. Does a miracle like this equal conversion? And I think this has been a um, a typical saying that has come up recently. I even heard a man say this, you know, that gospel proclamation was not enough. We need miracles to accompany the gospel so that people will be saved. They're not listening to the gospel. We need miracles to save people. And it's sort of interesting. And someone could go to this text and say, look, Peter did a miracle and lots of people were saved. Let's do that. But it's interesting. If we look deeper at what is going on and we really understand the rest of Scripture, even just looking at Peter's life, if we turn to Luke chapter 5, it's this amazing story. You're familiar with this call of Peter, I'll make you a fisher of men. We often forget what happened before that. Peter was out fishing all night long. Didn't catch anything. And Jesus tells him, cast your nets in. And there's so many fish that he can't, that he can't even contain it in the boat. And what does Peter say? Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He sees this miracle of Christ and is not, you know, just sort of flipping and cool. What else can you do? He's aware of his sinfulness. He says, depart from me. He tells the Lord to leave, basically that he's recognizing his sinfulness before this man that can command the winds and the waves. And the Lord reassures him, said, you don't need to be afraid. Stand up. I'll make you a fisher of men. But it's just interesting. So we can say with confidence and by looking at the rest of Scripture that it is not, um, these people are not saved because they just saw a miracle. They're saved because they saw their sin. They saw their sin and they saw their need of a Savior, this risen Lord Jesus. So these people aren't looking for their best life now, as we might say. They're looking for their best life to come, if you will. So this is the healing of Aeneas in verses 32 through 37. And then we turn to the resurrection of Tabitha. The resurrection of Tabitha. I'm not going to call her Dorcas because I just think that sounds weird. (laughs) So we'll we'll call her Tabitha today. So we pick up with um, Tabitha who lived in Joppa. She was a disciple. She was following the Lord and says she was full of good works and charity. So this was a pious woman, a follower after the Lord. And so she gets ill and dies. And they know that Peter is nearby. So they send for Peter. They call him. We don't really know why, but they call for Peter. And we also see another interesting detail that there was widows there. And they were weeping. 
And this was a traditional custom to have mourners and weepers there after the death of someone. But it's interesting what Peter does. He tells them all to leave. And he's really following the example of his Lord. If you turn to Mark chapter 5 with Jairus' daughter, there's a lot of weepers. It says there was a great commotion in this upper room. And Jesus, Jesus tells them all to leave. And so there's this sense in which Peter is following the example of his Lord and saying, this is, get out, basically. Let's quiet ourselves. And, um, and he cleanses the room, basically. And it says he kneels down and he prays. And he turns to the body and he says, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, arise. And I think it's just important to understand this. Tabitha was a... A believer. She was a follower of the Lord. She was full of good works and charity. And she got sick and she died. And we can see how legitimate this is because there's people mourning her death. There's widows. And many speculate that Tabitha was also a widow. So these would have been fellow widows with her that were coming to mourn. We see that they're showing tunics and other garments that she made. So you can kind of think of this like a quilting club, maybe. <laughs> My grandma was in a quilting club. And you can almost just imagine what it would be like to lose a good friend, someone close to you, and to have that person suddenly get sick and die. And so we can see that Tabitha is really dead. This is not fake or phony. These people are sad over her loss. But Peter comes and says, arise. And so out of death, we see this resurrection. Out of the death of Tabitha, we see this resurrection. So she is risen from the dead. Her eyes are opened. Peter raises her up. And what once was lifeless now has life. What once was dead is now made new. And it's important to understand Tabitha's resurrection is different than our Lord's resurrection, right? Tabitha will die again to kind of... (laughs) You know, Scripture doesn't say that, but we understand that Tabitha will die again. She is resurrected for um, a time, but will ultimately pass away again. Our Lord's resurrection was permanent, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So she is presented alive, and again, after this resurrection, we see many believe, many turn to the Lord throughout all Joppa, and people are being saved because of this. So this is the text, really, r- relatively short and straightforward, but we can't miss um, the importance of this text, where it fits into Scripture, and what Luke, who wrote Acts, is trying to tell us through this. So like we do every w- week, let's take a step back. Let's consider three things. First, consider the crook in the lot. Kendall, what are you saying? <laughs> Consider the crook in the lot. Crook in the lot is, I'm stealing this from an old 17th century theologian's book called The Crook in the Lot. Thomas Boston is his name. The crook in the lot. Think of a lot as your lot in life. You might think of it, commonly it's called the hand that you're dealt, right? The lot in your life, how your life goes. And the crook in the lot is the unexpected um, we might say negative are hard parts of life. The crook in the lot. Hopefully that's making sense. The crook in the lot is those things in life 
which are hard, the hard providences of God that are just a part of life. And Thomas Boston wrote this book called The Crook in the Lock, and he based it off of one verse in the scriptures, Ecclesiastes 7.13, which says this, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Who can make straight what God has made crooked? And then it says this, In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made one as well as the other. You might say, Kendall, why are you talking about this? <laughs> we just saw two miracles, right? Isn't this great? Shouldn't we be happy? God's going to heal you. There is a teaching out there that goes around that God has purchased perfect healing for you. Perfect health, perfect wealth. You can have everything you want, a boat, a house, whatever. That Peter did this, you can do that too. And we have to be very weary of this kind of thinking. That there's going to be no problems in your life once you become a Christian. And for Aeneas and Tabitha, they both, for a season, were, had very hard crooks in their life. Aeneas was bedridden for eight years, and Tabitha got ill and died. And so all that to say, we need to consider the crook in the lot, meaning we cannot make straight what God has made crooked. We all will have hardships in our life. Maybe one of us will be bedridden for eight years. Maybe, we, maybe some of us have cancer. Maybe some of us have suffered abuse or poverty in our life. But we cannot make straight what God has made crooked. And you might say, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with anything? And it's easy to kind of point the finger at the prosperity gospel and say that's wrong. But how often do we think like this, right? That if my theology is good, my life will go well. Or if I do good deeds like Tabitha, then my life will go well. I won't suffer. I won't be in pain. And we have to kind of guard ourselves against this. And this is humbling. What did Moses say? He, God, God appears to him in the fiery bush. And he says, go proclaim this message. And what does Moses say? I talk slow. I, I can't speak very well, God. You made me wrong, basically, is what he's saying. And then God says, who made your mouth? Who makes a man blind or mute or deaf? Is it not I? That's a profound statement. And prosperity people do not like to know that that verse exists. God is the one that makes men blind or mute. That is what Ecclesiastes is saying. And that is a hard, humbling truth for us. Uh, but we have to say it because Scripture says it. And so sometimes our life will go well. Sometimes there will be times of great prosperity, as Ecclesiastes says. says. But there will also be... Seasons of difficulty, of adversity, difficult providences, whether it's cancer, death, abuse, depression, all these things are hard providences. But because God is sovereign, we can have true, lasting comfort. So we can take comfort and joy in that today. So observe the crook in the lot. Secondly, behold the mercy and grace of God in Christ. Behold the mercy and grace of God in Christ. Did God have to heal these people? Did God have to heal Aeneas? Did he have to raise up Tabitha? We have to say no. Meaning, 
did he have to? I mean, is he morally wrong if he doesn't heal everyone? That's not true. God, in his mercy and grace, extended his favor to them, healed Aeneas, and rose up Tabitha. And so we can see this as pictures of God's work of redemption in our lives, right? We are spiritually crippled in our sin. And before we come to Christ, we are spiritually dead like Tabitha. And so we have to ask the question, does God have to heal everyone or spiritually raise everyone? And this is also hard, but the answer is no. It's actually the opposite. Because God is just, he is obligated not to save everyone, but to judge rightly everyone. And because of our sin, as Daryl read this morning, and as one of my children's books says, because of our sin, we can't come in, into God's presence, into his safe presence anyway. And so it's important to understand this act of mercy and grace of God, that it is not something that we deserve, but that God gives graciously. And so we can ask the question, how can anyone be saved, right? If we're all sinners, how can anyone be saved? It is out of the sheer mercy and grace of God in Christ. And as we read today in Galatians 4, I love this verse so much. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. In the fullness of time, Christ sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. That is because of God's grace and mercy. Not anything in us, but it's because of God's grace and mercy. So we who were once crippled and spiritually dead, like Aeneas and Tabitha, God has, by his mercy alone, risen us to new life. So behold God's mercy. And then finally, look to the new heavens and earth. Look to the new heavens and earth. There's many things that we can glean from the miracles of Scripture, right? There's the compassion of God as we just talked about, in miraculously healing these people. There's the spiritual realities that are showing forth. If you're reminded of John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 miraculous loaves of bread. And then what does he say? I am the bread of heaven. So there's many ways that both Scripture uses miracles to tell us things about God, about ourselves. But one of them is that it points to the end. These miracles point to the end. You might say, Kendall, what are you talking about? In the book of Revelation, we see this picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in our day and age where heaven is just where we're kind of floating spirits, right? We're sort of cherubims playing the harps or something with wings. This is not what the Bible says. We are in the new heavens and new earth. We will have resurrected bodies. And you can read about this in places like 1 Corinthians 15 and such, that we will have resurrected bodies. And the scriptures refer to this as the new creation. This is really the story of the whole Bible, right? Creation. God creates. Fall. Man falls from their state of perfection and falls into a state of sin and misery. But God, through redemption, through his son, saves a people and will one day consummate that in the new heavens and the new earth. So this is really the story of the scriptures, is from creation, fall, to new creation. And it's amazing that these miracles show us this. They show us two things, really. It's a reversal of the curse, if you think about it. 
what did the curse of sin bring in? Sin, death, destruction, there was none of that before the fall. So this crippled man and this dead woman, there was, that would not have existed before the fall. And so God, in breaking into time and space and healing them, this is a reversal of the curse. It's saying, I came to reverse what Adam did. So it's not just a reversal of that. It's also pointing to the end. What is true of the new heavens and the new earth? There's no sickness. There's no death. Every tear will be wiped away. And so these miracles are an inbreaking of that. The technical word we can say is an intrusion. <laughs> I kind of like that word. An intrusion. It is the new heavens and the new earth breaking in. In a way, God's saying, this is what the end is like. There will be no mourning. There will be no death. There will be no sin. And so, and this is what happened in Christ's resurrection, as we talked about. Christ was resurrected, but he did not die again. Tabitha will die again. Christ did not die again. He was resurrected, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for us. And the scripture calls this the first fruits. You might say, what is that talking about? The first fruits was a festival in the Old Testament where you gathered in the first part of the harvest, but it was in anticipation for the full harvest being brought in. Christ as the first fruits of our resurrection, that we will one day be resurrected with new bodies that won't perish, that won't have sin, and so this should be a great comfort to us that even though we see Aeneas crippled and Tabitha die, we can look forward to our resurrected bodies that Christ has purchased for us. He did this for us and for our salvation. And we have this in part. What is regeneration? It is a work of the Spirit of God where he gives us a new heart, a new creation. That's a great way to think about the kingdom of God. What does Jesus say to um, Nicodemus in John 3? You cannot even see or enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And so this picture of the new creation, we have this in part and we will one day have it in full. And this is ultimately the work of the triune God. The Father planning redemption. The Son coming, accomplishing redemption. The first new creation in this resurrection. And the Spirit coming applying that work of redemption, giving us new hearts, sealing us for the day of redemption. This is a great comfort to us. This is really the gospel. And so we're going to sing in a minute the song, It Is Well. Some of you might be familiar with that song. And it's a great song about both trial and comfort. And the story of the song is longer than we have time for right now. But the first verse says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, so when things are going well, or when sorrows like sea billows roll. Many of us in this room might be experiencing sorrows and sufferings right now. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And then in the final verse, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. In another verse it says, The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. Looking to this end where Christ will come on the clouds, will rise his people from the dead, and we will be with him for eternity in the new heavens and the earth. So we have hope in that today, saints. So would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we come before you again today thankful for your work of redemption. We thank you for your mercy and grace, not only in healing these two saints, but also in healing us of our spiritual crippledness and our spiritual death. You have made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And this is not by our work, but by the work of your spirit alone. Help us to trust in that today. And even though in this life we will experience many trials and tribulations, maybe some very acutely right now, wherever our lot, help us to say it is well. Because we can look forward not to this life, not to earthly things, but to heavenly things in which righteousness dwells. May we trust in that today. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want to turn with if you want to stand with me and turn to song number 12 we'll sing it is well
join with me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Receive the benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace as you go from here.